Um, it's good to be with you again, and uh, so thankful for your pastor uh, and to be able to call him my friend. Um, I don't know how many of you are into country music, but uh, I, I dabble there. I don't live there, far from it, but I dabble there. And uh, I particularly like Tim McGraw's song that, that came around uh, years ago, and it's Live Like You're Dying. I, I know some of you have probably heard it. Uh, at one point, he says, you know, after I learned that I was dying, and, and many, it's about his dad who passed away, and, and he says, after I, I, I learned that I was short on this earth, I, I got this, I, I started to live like I was dying. He said, I went skydiving, I went rock climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. I loved deeper, I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I've been denying. And, the same, uh, and, and, and someday I hope that you get a chance to live like you're dying. I remember when it came out, and I thought, wow, man, would, people would be a lot better if we could just take that advice and live like we're dying. The world would be a better place. Imagine people loving more and better, forgiving more, being a better friend, being a, a, a better father, a better mother, a better husband, a better wife, and on and on and on. And with that song, I agree. If we could live like we're dying, life as we know it would be so different. And some of those things that matter so much to us now wouldn't mean very much. And some of those things that we place low on our priority list suddenly would become important. We'd just be different. Life would just be different. You know, as I thought about that, really thought about that, even if we lived like that, would we be guaranteed to experience a better life? I mean, less stress, more, uh, less bad, more satisfaction, more contentment. Would we experience the life that we dream about? Would we experience the life that maybe we read about in the Bible? Maybe we feel we've been promised to by God. You know, I really don't think that would be the case. I think people would still find discontentment. I still think they'd still find disillusionment in their daily lives. And I've become convinced over my 55 years plus walking this earth that the key to living is dying. Not living like we're dying, but actually dying. And I'll get to what I mean in just a little bit. I was given the task of bringing you a message on Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. For those of you familiar with the word, that's a pretty daunting task. Thank you very much. Uh, but I will try to make it worth your while today and share a bit of my heart and give to you what I really truly feel and believe is the key to dying. I want to look at how a dead man lives life. And we're not talking zombies. Up until this point in this passage or this book that we call Romans to the Roman church, the Apostle Paul, our author, has been building a case for the necessity of salvation. We've been told that we are all sinners. 
Now, I'm guessing that none of us would argue with that case here. Hope not. <laughs> if you do, come and talk. I'll point out the fact that you're wrong. Um, we've been shown that there's only one way to be saved from the wages of sin, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. And please make no mistake, um, the Bible is extremely clear on this point over and over and over again that there is no other way. And yes, that does make the Bible and makes Christianity exclusive. We're all invited to come. We're all invited to embrace Jesus Christ. But it's just fact that not everyone will choose Jesus Christ. And he is the only way. We've been told that by placing our faith in Jesus for salvation, we are given the gift of eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul has let us know, he's let us know that the human race is doomed because of the sin of Adam. Sin has infected us all. It's become part of our DNA if we call ourselves a human being. And it is an incurable disease with only one exception, and that is those humans who give their lives to Jesus Christ are saved from that doom and are given new life in him. <laughs> it sounds like some kind of sci-fi movie plot, except for the fact that it's true. And as we begin chapter 6, Paul is going to spend the next three chapters telling us how to live this new life. And now some of us might think, you know, been there, done that, I've heard this, I, I don't really need that information, uh, I got it down, I'm really clear on it, uh, I got this, Dave. And uh, to be honest with you, from where I sit and how I observe life on earth, I believe that we Christians desperately don't get this. And we desperately need to understand it better. All the signs point to the fact that many people claim to have this new life in Christ, claim to be saved, claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, whatever phrase you feel comfortable with, but they don't seem to know how to live that life out in their daily lives. And believe me, I am not pointing the finger at anyone here. I'm pointing it at myself. So Paul gives us some detailed instructions on how to live this new life in Christ. And his, the emphasis is on those two words that Paul always emphasizes and never tires of saying, in Christ. Now let's be honest. We all, if we claim to be a Christian, we struggle to live a godly life. We try and we try and we try and we blow it again and again. And, and we feel like failures because we can never quite measure up to everything that we read in the Bible. We hear sermons, we read books, we, they all tell us how we should live and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And sometimes we, if we're honest, we find in our hearts, we silently say, God, how do I do this? How do I do this? 
And if we're honest, some of us, we've come to this place, and it is a scary place. It's a scary place to be, usually in the midst of a tough time, when we're tired and we're weak and we're frustrated and we begin to question and we say, is my faith real? Does it really make a difference, God? If you've ever been there, you know exactly what I mean. You get it, what I'm saying. And you know how scary and confusing and even desperate that place is. For those of you who are there, I want you to listen really, really clearly. And I'm not just using a pat phrase here. There is hope. There is a light at the end of this tunnel. I promise. But it's still scary. And it doesn't take the journey and the struggle away. But there's hope. For those of you that have never been to this place, my guess is if you commit yourself to spiritual progression, to selling out to Jesus Christ, you will sometime in the future hit that place. It's part of the journey. And the struggle has come because God has brought you to that place. And very often what I'm or have been and am learning is that very often God brings us to that place because it is only there in that place that he can teach us some important life lessons about this life that he's given us. But our struggle comes because we keep trying to live a life that we've died to. And that, my friends, is a recipe for frustration and disillusionment. So for dead people to live, Paul says there are some things that need to occur. We have to accept some realities and act on them. And the first thing that we need to do, we find it in verses 1 and 2, is we need to accept the reality of our death. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? Or live in it any longer? And as, you, as usual, Paul anticipates the arguments of, re, of his readers, and he deals with them right up front. The argument is based on chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20 of, of Romans, it says, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So here we're told that in the presence of a lot of sin, there's a whole lot more grace. That's the good news, right? So let's understand grace before we kind of jump into it. And we've sung about it. Uh, I'm sure that you, you've been uh, taught about it. But let me quick give a definition from where I'm coming from. Uh, grace is undeserved favor. Something you receive that you've not earned and that you don't deserve. Some people... I might think of grace like a really good salary. Okay, maybe $1,000 an hour. That's pretty awesome, right? We would all like $1,000 at all an hour. We'd be thrilled. We'd be excited by that. We'd probably be writing checks now so that we can cash them later. We'd be grateful to our employer. But the truth is, that would be a wage, something we've earned. 
something we've worked for, no matter how good a salary it is, it's still just a salary, a wage. Grace is like giving you $1,000 an hour to sleep in. How cool would that be? Yep, I'm on the clock. Let me go get a few more Z's here. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. But you get it anyway. Grace. We all know the acrostic. God's riches at Christ's expense. So the argument in verse 1 says, well, if grace comes as a result of sin, then shouldn't we just sin more to enjoy God's grace? And poor, Paul answers that question like we would. Of course not. But sadly, and let's be honest, this is a philosophy of life that an awful lot of people embrace. And truth be told, an awful lot of Christians embrace it. Many of us, many Christians, know that they're saved, that their salvation and their eternity is secure, but they are content to live far below God's standard. They know they can mess up any time. They know they can come to God and receive forgiveness because grace reigns, and they would be correct. But is this kind of living really living? A lot of us have come to embrace this type of thinking. We don't want to admit it, but truth be told, we have. Now think about it. We might fudge on our taxes a little bit knowing that we can ask for forgiveness from God, and he will give it, and we'll get it, and we'll also get a little bit of that extra money and those write-offs. The question we should be asking is, what's the real cost? Our integrity? Oh, not fully, because we're just fudging just a little bit. Peace of mind. We want things, so we work harder, and we put in more hours. And we get more things because we do all that. But at what cost? Poor health, broken relationships, you fill in the blank. We, we know the right thing that we ought to do, but we choose to do the wrong thing because it will get us what we want. And the truth is, we do get what we want. But at what cost? Guilt, a forfeit a forfeit of God's blessings. And then we ask God to forgive us because we have grace. And he does. And we do. But in living like this, and this is what I want to stress to those of us that claim to be Christians, in living like this, we do forfeit God's promises that are attached to obedience. We miss out on this God life. We get what we want, but we miss out on what we need. I think it's a dangerous way to live our lives, and if you're caught up with that mindset, I'm guessing that it brings some certain questions to mind. Like, am I really saved? Do I really know Christ? Is my faith real? And maybe you can give a definite yes to that question. And if so, great. And my next question to you is, and to me, do I really believe God's word, really? Or 
am I content to lean on my own understanding of life and how it should be lived? Paul's answer to their argument and our questions is very brief and clear. If we are indeed dead to sin, how can we continue to live in it? That word continue there is an ongoing, consistent lifestyle. How can we continue to live in it if we're dead to it? Paul uses death as the analogy for the Christian life. And while we who are in Christ are more alive than we ever have been, at the same time, we're also dead. When someone dies, death, death touches their physical bodies and certain changes take place immediately. As soon as the person dies, dies they lose all desires for the things that they used to enjoy. For example, um, if a man or a woman were an alcoholic, as soon as they die, they no longer are plagued with the urge to drink. If someone were a drug addict, at the moment of death, suddenly they would be free from the desire for drugs. If somebody has financial problems at that moment of death, death who cares? They suddenly have become debt-free. Physical problems cease. Death brings with it certain limitations for the person affected by it. The same is true for the Christian. When we placed our faith in, in Jesus Christ for salvation, we are said to have died to sin. Now, I know that that old nature inside of us, that sin that Adam affected us with, it still yearns for its sinful expression. It still wants everything it previously did. The old nature will not change until we are done with these physical bodies and stand in front of Christ face to face. But when we're saved, when we come into this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we're told that we're made a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, all, he is a new creature. All things pass away, and behold, all things become new. There's a new man living in this old body, and that new man is dead to sin. He doesn't care about it, he doesn't need it, doesn't appeal to him. Now, let's be honest, I get it. I get it that we have a hard time grasping this because... To us, we're still, we still want to sin so much. <laughs> Let's be honest. We want to sin. Sin has its rewards. Sin has its attractions. And, and maybe some of us, after we became a Christian, we struggle with sin so much more than we did before. Here, I'll tell you why. If you go to the halls of AA, you find out that they tell you that the best way to, to, to make your drinking miserable is to become sober. It ruins your drinking, they say. And it's true. Because suddenly you can't respond and react in the same manner in which you did before because you know, you have clarity of mind. And the same thing with the Christian. We can no longer continue to enjoy the sin we previously had engaged in because now we sit there and uh, we know that it, we're dead to it. I mean, that's a silly thing, right? 
If you're dead to it, why are you still messing around with it? Well, because we got that sin nature. We got that struggle. I get it. I get it. The word count, and that's what Paul says. Paul gives us verse 11 of that same chapter. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word count is an accounting term, and it means to calculate. Paul is telling us to add up the evidence and then declare ourselves dead to sin. Listen, in other words... God isn't going to do this for you. That responsibility is on us. Now, we don't like responsibility in, in regards to that sometimes, but that's the truth. We have to be actively involved in accepting the fact that we died to sin. And therefore, we're no longer in bondage to it. Romans 6.14, for sin shall not be your master, because you're not under the law, you're under grace. God puts the responsibility on our shoulders. We need to remind ourselves, remind ourselves of this truth. Remind ourselves that we're no longer slaves to sin, that it's no longer our boss, that we can say no, that we don't have to listen to it. Because there's the lie of the enemy. You guys all know the story, I'm sure. You've heard the story of how they keep circus elephants uh, in one spot. And when they're little, they, they, they take a big stake in the ground, they put that stake in, and they, they chain the little elephants to that stake. And when they're little, they can't pull it out. And of course, when they get big and strong and powerful, they could easily pull it out, but they don't because they feel the chain on their legs. So they stay standing where they are. Well, what's got them in bondage? It's not the stake. It's the lie. That's exactly what the enemy does to us. He stakes us in the ground and he says, sin is still your master. And we believe him. And the lie keeps us from living the life God has freed us from. And we become stuck, not because we are, but because we believe we are. So we need to remind ourselves of God's truth. We need to remind ourselves that I'm dead to sin. I can say no to it. It doesn't have control over me like it used to. And I want to stress that along with that, he has given us this amazing privilege to remind others of this truth. That is why we come and we meet with other fellow believers, because we are forgetful people, and we need to be reminded that we don't have to listen to the lie that we're dead to sin. I need you to remind me because I'm going to fall into those, those, those patterns. I'm going to get stuck in believing the lie. And I need you to say, Dave, you're dead to that. You don't need to listen to that lie anymore. You can pull that stake up. You don't have to stay there. You can bathe in grace. We need to be in fellowship with other believers just for that fact alone to remind us because we are so forgetful. I enjoy diving. It's a new hobby I took up several years ago with my oldest son. We got certified together. And I'll never forget the moment of my first full-blown-out panic attack. Not a good place to have it 40 feet underwater, but that's where it happened. 
and I was doing my third open water dive. You have to do a series of four to get certified, and I was on my third one, and I had talked my instructor into doing it up in Lake Mayapak. And so I had dove earlier, several times actually, in the clear water of the Caribbean. But the cold April water of Lake Mayapak was a different story altogether, especially when you had a full, huge wetsuit on with the hood, and I, I was, for me, a disaster. And we swam out to the deep water of the lake, and there's not a whole lot of deep water in the lake, but the one particular spot we did, and he took us down about 35, 40 feet, and when I got down there, I mean, it was not crystal clear like the Caribbean at all. It was very dark. It was very murky. I could barely see his face. I could barely see my son who was right next to me. And, and as the instructor is trying to get my attention and as he's looking through his mask trying to communicate with me, and as I'm struggling to understand what in the world he's saying, I could feel myself starting to take air in, and I wasn't able to exhale it very well, and I could feel this panic. I didn't know what was happening. It never happened to me before, but I could feel this, this, this panic starting to happen. And when you're underwater 40 feet and you start to panic, like anywhere where you panic, you start to breathe quicker, and you start to take more oxygen in, and, and I'm, I'm in a bad place here, you understand. And I'm suddenly realizing I'm in deep trouble and I look up at the surface, and I know I'm not supposed to swim up there just straight up because that's really dangerous. But at this point, desperation kicks in, and I just went like this to the guy. I swam to the surface. I got to the surface. I had a uh, frame of mind to fill my little BCD up with air. So I'm floating on the top going, ah, 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 ah. and he's saying, Dave, talk to me. I'm going, hi, hi, can't, my poor son thought I was having a heart attack. I mean, it was a nightmare, you know? And they kind of floated me back to the dock. I got on the deck, my, deck, my, my legs were just shaking. I'm saying, I'm not going in the water again. And I didn't. Now, fortunately for me, um, after that, I, I did go shortly after down to the Caribbean. My wife took me away on my 50th birthday for a, uh, down in, uh, uh, it was a great time. We went down on, I'm trying to remember the island. And uh, she, she put me on a boat uh, for a week with four other couples. Now, you know, I'm sitting there when she's, she's going to pop the surprise. Because she took me down to Antigua. She get, took me down to Antigua. And we're, 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 this is a big mystery. And she puts me in front of this, this boat. And I, I'm looking at this boat. And uh, I forgot the name of the boat. It was something like Pleasure Island. I said, sounds good, you know. But uh, she said, well, we... we now, I've previously said, I do not want to go on a boat with four couples. I do not know. Does not sound like a good vacation. And all of a sudden, she looks at me, and she says, we're going on the boat on the catamaran for, for a week. And I looked at her, and like, no. <laughs> no. It didn't go over real well, as you can imagine. But we, we ended up going. We had a great time. And while I was there, I told the captain about my little experience and and the the water down there is gorgeous the diving's beautiful and uh, so he talked me into going down and taking my last two open water dives and he goes I got my friend he'll take care of you so this little Scottish guy comes on board and he's got this thick Scottish brogue and and he begins to talk to me and ask me if I'm comfortable underwater and I said well let me tell you a story and I told him the whole story and he goes look Dave he goes nothing is gonna happen to you down there that I've not experienced before and he goes, 
as soon as, as long as you've got that little breathing apparatus in your mouth and air on, in, in your tank, you're good, man. You can be down 100 feet. And as long as you got air in your tank and air in your mouth, you're fine. You just got to tell yourself. You got to remind yourself of that. And sure enough, he took me down. There I am, 60 feet, standing on the bottom of the, uh, of the ocean. And I'm breathing, and I'm having a great time. And there's a six-foot turtle over there just sitting there taking a look at me. And I'm looking at him and waving. He doesn't know what I'm doing, but I'm just kind of waving. And, and, and I had an awesome amazing time and so I think very often you and I God has given us this wonderful kind of life he said you are dead to sin and what we need to do the problem is is that when you're underwater and you panic that's when you get the the, the, the bad things happen and that becomes because of fear and and when you get over that it's amazing and God's given us all we need to live the kind of life he talks about we just need to have, have to accept the fact that sin no longer is our master we have to remind ourselves of the reality that sin can no longer control us and be our master we died to it and we're alive to God and we're his child and once we accept that reality that we are dead to sin then we can do the second thing and that is accepting the reality of our new position and identity in Christ. Verse 3 tells us that when we received Jesus, we were baptized into him. As a result, we were baptized into his death. And Paul's not referring to water baptism there. He's referring to baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those of you that know the word baptize, it comes from the original language. It means to immerse. And often it was used in reference to boats sinking. And so to, it's becoming immersed in something. So Paul is telling us that we need, we need to become immersed into his death, immersed into his death so that we can also be immersed into his life. So Paul is telling us when we accepted Christ, we were placed in the body of Christ. We're in him. Colossians 3, Ephesians 2, 6. We're placed there by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes on to tell us that when we were placed in Jesus, we were placed into his death, but we were also placed into his life. We were, by some extraordinary miracle of God, we were taken back 2,000 years and we were put with Jesus Christ on that cross. And we were nailed to that cross. And when he died, we died. But we were raised again in the newness and the victory of life. And a child of God is dead to sin, but we're also alive to Jesus Christ. And for this reason... It becomes trouble to us when we can't embrace those facts. And he reminds us again in verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul reveals this, this thrilling truth to us. Not only did we die with him, but we rose from him. Listen, because we are in Christ, we are participators in everything Jesus did. When he died on the cross, he was dying for sin. However, when he died on the cross, we died with him. When he rose from the dead, we were in him, so we rose. Paul's trying to tell us that our life is intimately tied to Jesus Christ's life. Just as we are in Christ in his death, we're in him in his life. And when a person receives Jesus as his Savior, he becomes a partaker of his death, but at the same moment, he becomes a partaker in his life. 
Since that is true, Paul says in verses 11 to 14, a believer should live in a way that is consistent with this new life. A new life in Jesus Christ is supposed to be different than a life before they had Jesus. It'll look different. It'll feel different. It'll be different. Okay. Okay. So Paul tells us we do live under grace but that is not a license to sin. Actually, the reverse is true. We're no we no longer have to listen to what sin, uh, sin says to do. It doesn't have power over us. We can tell it no. We're dead to sin at the same time we're alive to Christ. And the reason we struggle so much with the Christian life is that we forget this truth and we, we need to accept the reality of our death, but also the new reality of our new position and new identity in Jesus Christ. So great sermon, Dave. Got it. Heard it. Understand it. Believe it. But I still struggle with living like a dead man. My life is still tainted with sin. The struggle is still very, very real with me, Dave. Come on, Dave, be honest. How do I do this? Is it really possible? Let's not just give a little Christian phrase a little Christian verse and think, think we all got this, think that it's true because I'm wondering if it is. Here's my answer. You're struggling because you're still trying to live like you're dying. And what you need to do is just die. Yeah, I know. You're a believer. You've given your life to Jesus Christ. You go to church. You read your Bible. You pray. You try all the time, but you're still caught up with sin. It still controls you, so how do I die? Quit throwing those phrases out. Jesus said something very interesting. I've come to understand this verse in, I'm going to say, amazing ways in this last year. I've been a believer since 1982. I've been a pastor for over 30 years now. I've preached this verse so many times. I've shared this verse so many times, yet I don't think I really fully understood it until last year. Some things took place in my life that shook me to my very core. My faith come under, came under attack in ways that it never has before, and I found myself in that dark place questioning, is my faith real? And Jesus brought me back to this verse that I knew so well, but he brought it back to me in a new and fresh way that I'd never experienced or understood. Let me set the stage. Shortly before, uh, after Jesus feeds the thousands of people, remember that story? Jesus feeds the, the thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. Some loaves and a few fish. Yeah, I always, it always perplexes me why he was the only one to think ahead. I mean, you know, you women usually tell us men that we don't think ahead, but you didn't have lunches either. It was just this little boy. Kudos to him, you know. I mean, applaud that kid. And he came uh, to Jesus, and Jesus did this miraculous thing. And, uh, and then shortly after that, Jesus has a little time with his disciples, and then he echoes this verse that I'm going to share with you in a second. And right after that, something called the transfiguration takes place, which you can read that in your Bibles on your own. So right in between these two miraculous, amazing sci-fi things take place because of the power of God. And in between, as these guys are talking, and Jesus is alone with his disciples, he says to them, 
this very simple phrase, which I believe holds for us the key to dying. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I believe this is the answer to the question of why we keep getting stuck, why we can't live like a dead man, because we have not come to accept the reality of our death and identity when we become a believer. We do believe it, but we miss out on that special word. I'll get to it in a second. Let me break it down. If anyone would come after me, if we want to follow Christ, not just believe in him, not become, only become a child of God, but whoever really wants to follow him, to walk with him, to live the kind of dead man walking life, uh, to sin that he did, then are you ready for this? Here it is. The secret of walking like a dead man, he must deny himself. In other words, Take your own desires, your own interests, put them aside. we got to be like David, who asked God to give him the desires of his heart. It doesn't mean to deny that you're alive, but it means to put yourself second so Jesus can be first. It means, uh, we hate this word, it means surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender means just that. You don't come up to somebody and say, I surrender 85% of me. I surrender 98%. Yeah, which part do you want? Not want, you know? What do we chop off your foot? How about not in your hand? No, when we surrender, it's all or nothing. But we don't do that as Christians. We come 98%, 99.9%. You know, I just got a little part of my ear that I'm not going to surrender to. No, we surrender everything. So he can give us his best rather than letting us walk on our own and struggle in our own understanding. Isn't it amazing how many of us think we can run our own lives? How silly. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't know the way through, through life. I haven't been there before. I'm not familiar with the roads, the obstacles. I don't know that you got to make a right-hand turn by that financial disaster, and then you got to make a left at the relationship struggle. You know, I don't know the road. Jesus knows the way, so I need to deny myself and let him step up and take the lead. I need to put myself in a submissive, submissive position to him. And then I need to, he says, take up your cross. Now, here's where I got stumped because I always thought your cross was your struggle. You know, whatever it is that you're struggling with, your trial, your burden. It's much more than that. It's much more than that. I want us to stop here and understand. And I hope, I hope that as I define this, you will never sing that word cross in the same way. Because to every person hearing him say that, they knew what the cross was. The cross was not a religious symbol back then. It was not some wonderful church thing. The cross meant one thing to them, death, brutal death. Put yourself in their frame of reference. Take up your cross daily. Jesus, we know what that means. Jews, 
thought anybody that died on a cross was cursed by God. Romans, they weren't, no matter how despicable they were, they weren't allowed to be crucified. They got the more humane treatment of taking their head off, like Paul, because of how brutal crucifixion was. It was adopted by the Romans because it was so great, a capital punishment of death. It was brutal. The Persians developed it. Romans got it from them. And it is said that a person who dies from crucifixion literally dies a thousand deaths, sometimes hanging up on that cross for a week at a time before they died. The brutality of it. Go and look in your medical journals. Some say that there is no more brutal, torturous way to die than through crucifixion. So when Jesus says, take up your cross daily, do you understand what he was saying? He was saying, daily, you need to die. And there is the key word. It's only, it's interesting, only Luke uses the word daily here. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and daily follow me. Daily. Daily. Every morning, you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to put ourselves down there and say, Lord, today I'm nailing myself to the cross. Today I'm dying. Today I'm living for you, Lord. Today I'm reminding myself that today I die. And every morning you come and you die again. We die to ourselves. And we say, Jesus, I'm going to live to you this day, this day. T tomorrow has enough worries itself. That's what the Lord told us. This day, I am dying. This day, I'm putting myself on the cross. This day, I deny myself and I follow you this day, Lord. Daily, daily. You want the promises of God. You want the life that he's talking about. I do too. The key word is daily, Christian. Daily. And I missed that. And, and I forgot these realities. And so I struggled with that sin nature that wants so much to keep me in bondage. Daily. Take up your cross and follow me. And that, I believe with all of my heart, is our secret to be a dead man walking. Father, I just thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that, um, that you have uh, taken sin captive and it no longer has any kind of power over us. I thank you, Father, that we can um, boldly proclaim that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ and Father, I thank you that you uh, saw fit to not just give us a piece of your kingdom, but to give us your very self. And so that when we are in Christ, Father, we don't have some type of religiosity, but we have you, yourself, your person and being. And Lord, I pray that we would learn to live in your joy, that we would learn to live in your peace. Father, I pray that each and every day you would remind us who we are and who we are not. 
And Father, each and every day, I pray that we would learn to put ourselves on the cross, to stand before you each morning and willfully deny ourselves and surrender all of ourselves to you. And Lord, I pray that you would take our lives, that you would show us your goodness and your grace. And Lord, I pray that we would learn to cry easily when we think about you. Father, not because of sadness, but because of sheer joy of what you've done. And Lord Jesus, we just pray that we, your children, those that came to be Christians, Father, I pray that you would bring us to a new life and experiencing that new life. Father, give us those daily victories over sin and help to remind us that we so desperately need to be and live in you. In Jesus' name.